0: Welcome to the Beyond Medicine Podcast. My name is Rami Webby, and I'm your host. In this podcast, we bring you inspiring leaders from across the medical landscape and explore the cutting edge of science and medicine. What's up, guys? This is episode 61 of Beyond Medicine with Dr. Anne Sung. Dr. Ann is an ER doctor, a NASA flight surgeon, and has worked on SpaceX medical projects as well as Virgin Galactic research. Dr. Ann has training in jungle medicine, survival and tactical casual training, and is on a mission to help people create time, vitality, and deep relationships. Dr. Ann, talks to us a little bit about her background, story, upbringing, and what it takes to set long-term goals and create the life of your dreams. So without further ado, I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Dr. Ann, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today?
1: Doing fantastic. Thank you for having me. It's an honor.
0: So, so 19 years old, you had this vision to become a flight surgeon and mapped out a life you know, 10 years down the line, 12 years down the line, and here you are now a NASA flight surgeon. And I'm just, you know, fascinated with, you know, the ambition to think about that at 19 and, and, you know, project yourself into the future and then go ahead and execute on that. And, um, you know, how, <laughs> I'm just curious how you managed to think that up at 19 years old. <laughs> well,
1: um, first off, I like to explain to people what a NASA flight surgeon actually does. Because a lot of people are not too familiar with it. Essentially, we're the doctor for astronauts and we keep them safe, reach peak performance when they go into space. We th- ourselves don't fly into space, but we are there with them through training when they're in space and afterwards in rehab. And also I am full-time, that's my full-time job. And I am a part-time uh, emergency medicine and critical care physician. So um, also, as a disclaimer, everything I say is just my own author's opinion. It is not affiliated with any university or any government institutions. So- talking about how I initially set the goal. Actually, I was, got interested in space when I was nine years old. I read through encyclopedias that talked about planets and talked about space and astronauts, how they live. And I just thought it was super awesome. This was like in the 80s and early 90s. And then at 19, I remember that specifically the moment when I set the goal to, I was in my own apartment in college. And I was on in my bed and I was just researching the qualifications to be um to work for NASA. And when I saw that, I was like, no matter what I do, you know, with my life, with my future, with my career, no matter what, I just thought it was such an amazing place to work, to be surrounded by people from all specialties. I told myself then that I was going to work for NASA. And by then I was already striving for. Uh, to go to medical school. So by then, I said, you know, if I, whatever specialty I went into, no, I was going to aim for that goal to become a NASA flight doctor. And then, little by little, we can talk about this more in detail later. 14 years later, I finally achieved a goal of becoming a NASA flight doctor.
0: That's amazing. What was there something about space in particular that interested you when you were, you know, young?
1: I think it was the unknown, and it was just fascinating. And a world out there that was, you know, way bigger than what we could have ever imagined in such a scale. And just the fact that you can be on the forefront of technology, the forefront of discovery. It's human nature to want to discover and to be part of a bigger mission and a bigger purpose than yourself.
0: Yeah. I mean, I find it fascinating that, you know, at such a young age, you know, people can dream so big. And I don't think when I was nine years old, or maybe even 19, to think like, yeah, I could go and be a NASA flight surgeon, you know, for a lot of people, it's not even in their realm of possibilities. Was there something in your life that made you just believe that you could just go out and do anything or be anyone?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. I think um, it stemmed from my mom. My mom is actually uh, she's been a single mom, and they were divorced since I was born. Um, I I was just a baby, so I've never seen my mom. I don't know what my dad looks like, but you know, she had her own in Taiwan, own accounting company, um, and I just saw how she managed herself and how she was like a businesswoman. She was like a CEO of that company, and whatever she said, she would do, and. To progress even further, she actually lost everything. She lost the company. I think she had some bad investments. I'm not really quite sure, or she got into some scam, but essentially she lost everything. And we were actually really poor when we moved to the US. Um, and so poor that, you know, she would work in the as a waitress in Chinese buffets, sometimes uh seven days a week. And Initially, we didn't have money to buy furniture, so we would get uh, cardboard boxes, turn it uh, you know upside down, and that would be my dining table for, you know, I think that was my dining table for years. And even in that state, in that circumstance, she would say she would do something, and she would do it. She, you know, down the line, you know, it, she even like got robbed multiple times coming home, working late night shifts uh, till two, three a.m. just to make extra money. But um, she kept going, and she said, "I'm gonna get out of this." Rat race, essentially being a server trying to earn a dollar, two dollar tip, and then she got herself working at a clinic and um, a uh, with a physician, and then she said, "I'm gonna open up my own business again." She got her massage license, and she did, and she opened up her own massage store. So throughout my life, there was nothing that she had. Um, she, essentially, everything that she had said, she had. She basically did it, and so that was my model. So that gave me the confidence, of course, if I say I'm going to do it, that I'm going to get there. It's just setting the goal 10, 15 years down the line, and then you break them down to micro steps and you backtrack, and then you just take the next micro step, next micro step, which is a good grade so I can apply, get study for the MCAT so I can apply to med school.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's that is just even more uh, amazing than, than people can really comprehend because- to, to grow up in those conditions and then actually uh, do well enough in school and go on to medical school, let alone becoming a NASA flight surgeon. I mean, you know this, I know this, you know, when you're in medical school, 95% of your class is middle upper middle class, if not upper class, if not generations of doctors in the family that are again, going to medical school you know, I know I was in the 5%, you know, I have a similar story growing up, not quite to that extent, but also a similar story. And I knew I, I didn't come from the same families, all the, you know, the rest of the groups in medical school came from. So was there a particular challenge in that? I mean, were you just naturally smart and were able to get good grades and and get into medical school? And was, did you have any issues with financing that or Cause that's not, that's not, you know, quite common. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Um, well, growing up in Taiwan, actually the grades and studying is like essentially beat into our heads. And if I get um, an A on an exam, then it's you're supposed to in the Asian mentality. Like there's no like reward. You just, I mean, you're of course supposed to be a good student. So like studying and getting good grades, those have already been drilled to my, in my head since I was little. And I think You know, growing up, you know, through elementary, middle school, high school, I actually had some shame for being so poor. And I was shameful that my, you know, well-to-do friends' parents were dropping me off at this apartment that looked so crappy and also the fact that i saw my mom getting robbed or sometimes even crying because she couldn't pay the bills essentially those were all pain points for me since i was little to not fail to have the drive to you know not fail her And because I'm the only person that she has, essentially, and she has sacrificed so much for me, then, so that initially gave me the drive. Initially, it was from pain for not letting, wanting my mom to suffer. And then moving forward, then once, you know, financially, we're in a good place, we're actually, you know, she's doing well as well. Now, my drive and my passion has morphed, and it's not coming from a sense of lack, fear, pain anymore because of my own passion and my sense of purpose and my why has changed. Does that answer your question?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And there's so much there to kind of break down and go into and um, multiple questions, but I think I'll start with just to clear something up. So you were living in Taiwan for a set period of time. Did you move that you moved back here at some point or how old were you at that point? I
1: was born in Taiwan and moved to Houston when I was nine years old, and I've been okay. in Houston essentially since uh, until residency and fellowship.
0: Got it. And using pain or using any kind of hardship in life to project you forward, it does take a lot of strength. And it sounds as like you had a very strong, you have a very strong mother who's, you know, whose will and passion, basically, and commitment to her word, allowed you to see that. You know, even if it's hard, I'm going to use this, and I'm going to stick to my word. And if I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. And maybe that was that a sort of reinforcement to yourself. In, yeah, in, all, in way,
1: mm-hmm, yeah, she always taught me to be independent, to, you know, because she was a single mom. She said never depend on anyone, and to uh, yeah, she essentially just had that confidence that I'm going to show the world what I can do and that, you know, the world, they always look down on me. Some people steal her tips sometimes. And she just had this drive and passion to really show what the world, a single woman can do. Um, And also uh, one other item that you had mentioned regarding some hardships, like coming from Taiwan, I, I, the only thing was maybe the sense of um being poor but to me i didn't really have any sort of racial hardships um well, I was in English as a second language class until probably seventh grade. So to me, yeah, learning English took some time and I actually learned English from watching Full House. And I was in this competition, uh, this middle school competition throughout the year to read as many books and you can take a quiz on the books that you read. And it was from that competition because I was so competitive that I wanted to do well that I got out of English as a second language class finally in seventh grade. And I was like, Oh wow! I'm in the class with regular people, and I have one for, for. I mean, I just felt like a sense of celebration. Like I've, I've done it. I've reached my goal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Did you, uh, did you notice? I mean, was there a bit of culture shock? I'm sure there was. Moving back here from, or moving to the states from Taiwan. Did you, did you sense that people here were really different? People here may have been entitled in some way. May have been just uh, not as hardworking. Not as determined well what was your I mean I'm not trying to sh- dump on um, the American culture but I'm trying to you know understand because I know in some societies especially in uh, maybe in Asian societies there is this hardworking um, kind of culture and I don't know if you noticed any difference kind of coming here.
1: Well initially uh, when I first came I didn't know a lot of English so I actually surrounded myself with other Chinese speaking. <laughs> Um, uh, friends. And I only spoke Chinese most of the time. And then when I started branching out in middle school, having non-Chinese friend, friends, non asian friends, I think I always thought that they were really confident, that they were really carefree. I don't think I had a sense of understanding of what entitlement is when I was that young. I know that I always kind of looked up to them because that's who I wanted to be. I wanted to assimilate. I wanted to be able to speak English well. I wanted to, you know, know the pop culture that they're talking about. Um, But I didn't really get a sense that they were like less hardworking, but they were definitely more Outgoing, more carefree, more independent, which is what a lot of the Asian children are lacking. And one of the reason why my mom brought me to the U.S. Um, because she felt like in U.S., like in America, people are more creative and they're more outspoken.
0: Mm, got it. So you you come back here, um, you know, you take an interest in space. A couple years later, you're in your young or your older teens. You're 19 years old. You mentioned this moment where you were like, that's it. I'm going to become a NASA flight surgeon and you map out your life for the next 12 years. What, what does it take to set long-term goals that far ahead of time? And then, you know, I guess to some degree as physicians, we kind of all know this, you know, you come out of high school for most people, they kind of decide they want to go as a pre-med. They then do their classes, go to medical school, do residency, you're a doctor. (laughs) So we know that process. And I guess for people listening, I mean, what is it, you know, I guess you took it to that extra step where, you know, I never even knew becoming a NASA flight surgeon was possible. What was it for you that allowed you to map that out, set long-term goals and and go out and execute?
1: I think at the time I just set the goal getting into med school and then Getting into a residency and finishing residency, and then I'm gonna—I was gonna look into uh, NASA and working for NASA after I become a physician for a few years. That was my initial plan, and then so—and then, of course, it morphed into like two other fellowships. But um, that was the initial plan. Like, the most important thing is to get into med school, and then so once I had that long-term goal, I look at the short-term goal. I look at, of course, how do. I mean, essentially you look at, you know, monthly, you look at 90 days at that time when I was 19, I didn't have like, uh, such awesome goal setting, like smart goals, you know, specific when it's measurable at that time, I didn't have that. I just knew that, that I knew what was important and I knew I need to take the next micro step. So it is about studying well, it's about getting good grades. It's about finding the right mentors. It's about, uh, getting a good grades on MCAT. And at that time it was more about grit for me. Um, my goal was that, you know, if I'm going to get a good score on MCAT, then I'm just going to do all the practice tests. So I did like 40 MCAT tests from oh, Kaplan. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hours, like through every day, I just I did, did like 40. They're tiring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was like more of like a grit thing. Like it's like if that's available to me to reach my goal, then I'm gonna do it all. And then later on, getting into med school was like you have to get into grades because you have to get into residency. So it became it's it's like chunking down to four year and three year goals, and then chunking down even further to like the the academic year. and then chunking it down probably even further, like how many MCAT questions or how many USMLE questions do I need to do today to get a good step store score, which is kind of what I did. I actually took my step too early and I uh, had to calculate. I always did this. I would calculate how many 2000 something questions in the USMLE bank divided by how many days I got. And if I have to do like 400 questions, 200 questions, I would. Wake up, uh, whatever time it, it took to get it done, uh, which is what I did. I will wake up at four and finish it before I actually have to be in clinic by six or seven.
0: Yeah, well, I, I remember doing a very similar process. That is that actually is to to this day my process still. When I have a goal and like you know, it's just you got to do that when it's concrete. Like if you have a concrete goal, like three thousand questions and you know you just got to do it by this amount of time i would just do the math and break it down by a number of days and you know figure out how long it takes take me to do a certain amount of questions in a day and you know it it, it, it setting goals it really is a lot of math and mm-hmm. even to some degree statistics um i've i mean for myself i would you know try to always create a correlation of like You know, if I reach out to a hundred and I do this now with my, with my business, like, it's like, if we reach out to a hundred clients and we get one yes or two yeses, you know, just, I'm just kind of creating a hypothetical example here, you know, that's 2%. So you just got to do a numbers game and, and then, you know, just do the math. And um, I think, yeah, that, that it works, it works and it gives you comfort. It gives you confidence.
1: I think, uh, one of the ways that where it works so well is because you actually, it's like such a huge goal up there, like getting a good score, the MCAT. And sometimes like it could be people, it could be fearful. Um, but if you chunk it down, you, if you know, or like 4,000 questions, 2,000 questions, but if you chunk it down and actually do the math per day, it's actually manageable. So it's kind of like a way to cope with your fear, um, doing Mm -hmm. the math this way.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's That is actually, I think the primary reason I would do that just so I wouldn't feel overwhelmed because like, you know, when you just don't know what you have to do to reach a certain goal, it creates anxiety. And, but when you just break it down and then just know what you have to do every day, it just takes kind of the anxiety out of it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I do the same thing right now as well, because sometimes uh, when I'm reading documents or learning about engineering or flight rules, it's like. Sometimes they're like 200 pages to 500 pages and you open it up, and you have to read it through training and you're like, <laughs> okay, how many days do I have to do this? And also to add on, you divide it out. And then the other tip is, you know, I start doing everything in the mornings and I find that I can like two, three X the speed and comprehension of my reading. If I do everything, if I wake up at four or five in the morning, I love tackling my first deep work, deep learning task in the morning at the first hour. Because if I wait till four or five, it usually takes me twice as long because I have less mental capacity or cognitive capacity to avoid distractions.
0: Mm. So is that your regular schedule, like four to five, you wake up four or five in the morning?
1: I, I think my perfect time is five. That's my perfect time. And then I used to do all my morning routine and I go to the first task after speaking to my coach recently, what I've been doing is that I would do my cold shower because I really still don't like to do it. And if I can put it off, I will put it off. I would do my cold shower, dance in the cold shower again to stay, get the neurotransmitters going then go straight to the first reading and the first reading is or first task is usually loaded without internet without having to go into emails so that you're not distracted. So typically yeah I can finish hopefully by 6:30 and then wow. it's done.
0: Wow. So you're making us all feel bad about ourselves right now. <laughs> <laughs> but so t- it's is, my why.
1: My why is that I want to keep save time for my husband towards you know the end of the day. That's my why. If I don't do it in the morning, I'm gonna keep working until past five.
0: Well, that's okay. the so let's let, let's talk about that because that's that's you know interesting to me. We 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 talk about our whys and we all create these grand visions about why we do what we do. But you just named you just you just said something so simple and important to you. And it's you want to spend more time with your husband, and it could be as simple as that. That's what gets you up at five in the morning and into a cold shower. If I, you know, I've, you know, your husband is a lucky man. You <laughs> love him that much to do that. That's that's saying something. Well,
1: it's him and hanging out with my friends too. I actually started this in my fellowship, my critical care fellowship. I I was so focused on working, and actually gave up time with my friends. And then later on, I learned that you know if i could just finish what i need to read or study in the morning then i can go hang out with them i can i won't have to feel guilty for saying no so that that became my why in the beginning and i think i just got into such a habit that right now it's not an issue for me sometimes i wake up before my alarm and of course, my sleep is like my superpower. I protect my sleep, my deep sleep, and REM sleep like, like crazy. And mm-hmm. so, having quality sleep overnight makes it way easier to wake up.
0: What, what does that look like for you?
1: In terms of sleep, or in terms yeah, of morning yeah, yeah. routine? No, like, oh. like
0: what's your sleep schedule like? Like how do you? you I guess you know, map the, out the your nighttime sleep routine. routine.
1: Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, I'm huge into sleep. Like I have determined like huge sleep is my superpower because it's my longevity superpower. It's my brain mental uh, superpower. And that Usually a few, I definitely do not eat three hours before bed or else I will, I will know because I have the ura ring that checks my resting heart rate and also how, when it actually starts decreasing. And if I eat late, I don't get as much deep sleep. I don't get as much REM sleep. A few hours before bed, I've got my blue blocking glasses on already. I have a really dark one and I have a faint one. Um, The lights in the bedroom, they're like purple and same thing in the bathroom, I like a very dim yellow and I don't look at any screens two, three hours before bed. If I do, I'll know it because it takes me a while to go back to sleep. The room is super cold, set at 68 and the fan is on. Um, yeah, those are essentially the main things. And well, you, I have very, have very little interruptions. To a science. You, oh, you yeah. have it
0: down to a science. You. So what time do you go to bed?
1: Um, Nine to 10.
0: Nine to ten, and then you wake yeah. up for it, so you're getting around seven hours of sleep, seven, so seven
1: yeah yeah, yeah my perfect my perfect routine would be nine to five if nine sleep ten. not from nine to five, that would be wow. perfect, and of course, I'm not always perfect <laughs> last yeah. night, I ate at like eight p m and uh, I felt my stomach uh when I was going to sleep, and I could see it in my urray, so yeah. It's not always perfect, but when I do do, and when I reach that routine, if I go to bed at, at nine, if I don't eat late, I wake up at five. Oh my God, I am on. Like I can finish my top three priorities before 8 a.m.
0: Hmm. I'm going to have to listen back to this because I was up till midnight reading Twitter posts yesterday. So <laughs> so I, you know, there is a level of, I want to say the word dedication, but commitment to your goals and to the bigger vision, to your why. That I'm assuming it has something to do with you making these, you know, really hard uh, commitments and saying, "Look, I'm going to bed at 10 a.m. or 10 p.m. every day, and I'm going to get up at 5 a.m. and I'm going to take a cold shower." Um, what is it? What does it take for someone to get to that point? Because I ha- I personally have had moments in my life where I was like a machine and I would go to bed, you know, nine o'clock on the dot, wake up at five in the morning, go to the gym. And I was laser focused, but, you know, there was always seemed to be something I was working towards to get there uh, for me, you know, and particularly right before I was getting into medical school. I was like a machine because just getting in was just mm-hmm. it. Like, and I knew what I had to do. And ironically, it was the hardest I ever worked to this day. Like, I still struggle to get back to that level of dedication. It was the happiest I've ever been, um, and it was when I was just so committed. But I've, I've, I have to admit that I've struggled to get back to that point it may, it may have been because, you know, I got into medical school and I just relaxed and I was like, okay, I'm in. And I reached my goal. And then it was just, you know, completing the things to get through. And I guess, what is it that you do on a consistent basis that allows you to keep that fire going?
1: Yeah. What is my way now? Essentially. Yeah. Um, I think Well, I think number one, I didn't really start with all these habits. They're all one habit at a time They're and then stacked up and then, or I do them simultaneously. So now it seems like a lot, but this was over the course of like five plus years of like habit stacking and learning and habit stacking more. And a lot of it is automated. Um, So now... I think well, now I can tell you my why is to, you know, help people to help them create time, create vitality, create deep relationships, and to teach them everything I have learned for myself. Because in the past, when I finished my emergency medicine residency, I thought I was supposed to be happy. That was my long-term goal. Uh, you know, Now I can be financially secure and my mom will be happy. I'm happy. I'm supposed to be fulfilled. And then in the end, I felt like something was missing. And so I went on this multi-year journey to kind of find out what was missing. And actually the one major thing I found, like I spent so much money for coaching, for seminars, self-work, Uh, meditation. And really it's the relationship between my mom and I. And also uh, it's like my interpersonal relationships. I was so focused on my goal uh, of achieving professional success that I am lacking in this other part. So, you know, you have mentioned that, you know, how do you get that drive back to back where, where it was sometimes, you know, I've been thinking lately, maybe uh, it was too much for me. Actually, I kind of let go of the balance of life on that side. So I, after all this learning, then I feel like I want to kind of educate, share this with the world regarding longevity and regarding functional nutrition regarding productivity because I want people to learn how to create more time to do the things they love, to spend time with the people they they love, to be able to create the projects or the, you know, to put the ideas in the head into fruition. And also the why for me is to achieve the five freedoms in life. And the five freedoms, the first one would be the financial freedom. The second one is vitality freedom. So not just healthy body, but energetic body where you radiate positive energy, you can last throughout the day without needing caffeine, Uh, just really vibrant health. And then number third is emotional freedom. And that's essentially being very Zen, like a monk where any challenges that come doesn't phase you like any setback or they're not even really setbacks anymore. They're just learning experiences. Like your emotion is just like this level. And that's from meditation. And then the fourth one's location freedom where you're not stuck being at work in a certain place. And then um, the fifth one, let me see, location, emotional vitality, financial time freedom is a huge one where I want to be able to do the things I love to do with whoever I want to be for however long I want to do it for, uh, spend time with whoever I want. And so not be tied to any sort of like time constraints. So right now, those are my why. There's a lot, but those are my why. And that's like a North star, essentially that I'm always thinking about, um, then what are my actions right now? I need to make sure also it doesn't come from a sense of lack, but because of the sense that, you know, I know I can create more, I know I can educate, I know I can achieve more and it's fun. So if that, does that
0: answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. And what's so, I guess, you know, we know in our community, there's a lack of all of those freedoms and, um, you know, doctors are burned out and it's not a new phenomenon. We all know this and it's something that's been going on for a while. And I think that's been getting worse, especially through the pandemic. And, you know, we talked you know, our mutual friend Vikram has talked about this as well. And like, how is it that we get our community and not just our community, but everyone to embrace the five freedoms or to be able to actually you know live the life that they want you know not have to you know dread going into work every day and 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 do the things that they have to do because it's a soul-sucking experience sometimes and some mm-hmm. people just feel stuck and like they can't change what they're in they feel like you know now they've got mounting debt they got the golden handcuffs on and there's no turning back and i think i so i talk about this and and you know, the sunk cost fallacy. And I'm actually in the process right now uh, of writing a book on that exact phenomenon and how it's played out in my life. And I'm wondering, you know, how do you get someone practically to look at things objectively and make a change for the better?
1: I think that is near and dear to my heart because I can see that, you know, a lot of my friends are burned out uh, working in the ER, working in the ICU, and they do feel stuck. I think number one thing is learning about how other physicians that who have branched out for inspiration, because I went to a leverage and growth summit by Peter Kim, and he just had physician speakers who branched out into consulting, who uh, started their own uh, coaching life coaching company, started a real estate syndications. I mean, there are podcasts about this, and I that's how I got inspired that I could do it. And I think learning about those ideas, reaching out to those physicians to network would be the first thing. And I think the second thing is educating yourself on financial literacy as well, like uh, personal finance, how to not trade time for money because that's in the ER and ICU. If we don't work a shift, we don't have money. Like We need to learn how to invest, how to create passive income with the money we earn instead of spending on consumables. And then the other thing I think is huge is st- stress coping strategies. Um, because that's part of the emotional freedom. When we cannot co- you know, when we work at a shift, we're always going to have patients who may not be the perfect patient. Um, or we may have consultants, you know, a lot of times in the ER, we co- you know place a consult and we feel like. We could have done something more because they told us, well, we're missing this, we're missing this lab, we're missing this test. And so, learning how to cope with that emotionally, I think it's huge because if you take that burden on yourself and if you have, you know, give yourself negative self talk, like, I'm so dumb, I'm so stupid, why didn't I think of that? Then you bring home again to your family um, and you are saying negative things after work. Who, with your family, and it's like a spiral. Um, it's your, it's like an imbalance in all of your life. So, those are the top ideas I can think in right now. And really, it's just picking one thing
0: yeah. that
1: you can do. They all they all seem like a lot. It's really just one next step.
0: Yeah. So you so you mentioned a few things. One being. Finding a coach or a mentor, somebody that can be like uh someone that can walk you through the stages to get to where you want to be. Find someone that's doing what you want to be doing, someone that is living the life that you want to live in the future and learning from them and and uh being like a a student to them essentially. And I think that's um extremely undervalued and in, in our not only in our community, but just in general. And you mentioned earlier you have a coach. You've spent money on coaching. You've spent the investment of finding someone that can show you the ropes, and that's extremely undervalued. And you know, Vic is my coach, and he is is extremely valuable to me because he's showing me the ropes that if I were to do them alone, I would. It just it would take me infinitely longer to do so, and so. That is something that's extremely valuable. Uh, another point that you mentioned was financial, The you know, being financially competent, understanding how to make money work for you. And um, I just recently read a book uh, called Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and it, it mm-hmm. outlines this importance tremendously. And I read a comment the other day on Facebook by someone um Something along the lines of, you know, I went to school to become a doctor, not to become an accountant. Why do I need to know this stuff? Ugh. and I was just like, and I, you know, I'm like, this, this is why, this is why doctors struggle. <laughs> this is why a lot of people struggle because they think they went to school for X, and the real world now doesn't matter. Look, the real world is, you know, money is part of the real world. You have to be your own. You have to know how to do accounting, especially if you want to run a business. You got to know how to make money work for you. You got to understand people don't understand the power of money. They Mm -hmm. they, And they don't understand that money is a mindset. And that's something that I only in the last year have started to even understand and change my mindset about money, because it is partially the path to freedom.
1: I completely agree. I just reread which Dad, poor dad last week, so I can I can really relate. And it's not about how much money you make, but it's how much money you keep. And how would you know how much you could keep if we don't learn the tax laws? Um, you know, some physicians are not aware about creating an LLC for certain tax if you're a contractor and there are just so many benefits to being an entrepreneur or a physician contractor. And really to learn that can save you thousands of money for you to be able to put towards an investment. And again, like think about your mission, think about your drive. If you want to spend, be financially free earlier, if you don't want to trade time for money working the ER and ICU shift, then now is the time to educate or else, you know, I think you can be a doctor for a long time, for many, many years. You'll be comfortable, but it's a different feeling. I think once you have passive income, you don't actually have to work and you can go into work and actually feel excited, feel fulfilled when you do go into work, but you don't have that pressure to have to make money.
0: Right. Because I wonder what would change if every, like hypothetically, if every single physician out there no longer had any student debt, uh, no longer had any uh, financial stress and just you know could do now what they want with their time and practice medicine the way they want to practice it not because they need to show up for a paycheck but because they want to go and help people. What would happen? How many people would keep the job they're currently in? How many people would continue to work for the hospital? How many people would actually take the risk and go start their own ideal practice? And you know what would change? And you know, I think a big chunk of that is the golden handcuffs. I think a lot of people have built a life that they've now become accustomed to, and they cannot now scale it back. Um, they've got a mortgage they can't afford or they could afford, but you know, they got to show up and do um, a crazy amount of work for and put up with a lot of BS that they now have to put up with. Um, and so they're stuck in a lifestyle and now money is just you know keeping them in 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 the, in the the as a cog in the wheel rather than as someone who is fulfilling their life's purpose
1: yeah it's working for money instead of money working for you and you brought up something really important it's the limited mindset you know people feel stuck in their place even though they don't like working there but they feel stuck because uh, job stability. It's hard to find jobs in other places, especially a place with good culture. But I would say that it's possible. Like anything is possible, if you you choose to live in that city, you choose to be in that medical system. If you network enough, if you look out further enough one way or other, there will be a hospital system or a clinic culture that fits your values of actually quality patient care instead of just uh, you know, you, the, instead of just you churning the patients one after another, just for money purposes. And the reason I bring it up is because for me, I knew that I wanted to be working part-time in the place with a different culture, but it was full. Like the system was full, like you cannot get in. And usually you will have to know somebody in order to get in. Um, They don't just like take uh, uh, CVs off from people off the streets. So I tried for many years, like I always check back in a year later, three years later. I think, yeah, it was like fourth year. Finally, just through chance, just through me connecting with somebody uh, on a deep level that then six months later, they had an opening. (laughs) And so finally, I got a chance to actually apply and to be part of that medical system that I knew that the culture was awesome, that they care about the providers, they care about the nurses, they wouldn't spare any expenses to make sure that you have the right PPEs to make sure you have like a good shift balance, etc, etc. So I think that it's out there. It's possible. You're not stuck. You're never stuck. It just takes micro actions to get there. And it may take time and persistence.
0: Yeah. And, and network, the network is huge. And most jobs today are filled through knowing someone, someone knowing someone, a connection, someone that can vouch for you. I mean, that is, you know, the majority of the way doc, the jobs are filled or um, opportunities are found. Um, and I think, you know, having a strong physician network is super helpful because, you know, people want to, you know, we want to help our community. You know, we've, there is this bond between physicians that, you know, we've all been through the same thing. We all know the system sucks. We all want to fight against it. Um, and so there is, you know, we, we want to help each other. It's just, you know, finding those connections, finding the people that are willing to help you on your path, connect with you, have similar interests and things like that. And, and you know, actually one of the things we're doing right now with Beyond Medicine is we've built a Discord or a community through Discord where we have like a, a private physician group and uh physicians can help each other with getting resources, getting job opportunities, networking, uh mentoring, coaching, and then all of the resources for mm-hmm. investing and um, you know, uh things of that sort. So, you know, we have the discord now on the beyond medicine, kind of giving a, a shill here for beyond medicine, but the discord is there. And so if you're a doctor, you can, you know, put in your information and get verified in the community. And, um, and, uh, you know, it's, this is a community for our colleagues, for, for all the people that we work with to help each other. And that's massively important right now. We got to all kind of like bond together.
1: <laughs> now I'm going to have to check it out. I didn't yeah. know about that. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> It's new. It's in. It's you know. It's been basically um, through our core, through my core network. But uh, we are growing right now to the point where you know uh, we're adding features and channels and moderators and people that can really be a resource for doctors.
1: I think that's awesome. It's about finding the right tribe, right? Uh- you having the similar mindset the similar growth mindset not the limited mindset and a lot of times oh, you just need like who has the cpa that they could recommend how much are they paying for their taxes this past few years you know or you know, who has done a podcast and who's you know helping edit their podcast, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, you know, it's awesome to be have a place in the community to be able to do that. Yeah. So that's awesome yes. that you created that.
0: <laughs> yeah. And and you know, one of the things is like I feel so much more comfortable when one of my physician colleagues recommends someone to me or says, Hey, you know, I've used this CPA, they're amazing. You should use them, or I've used this uh broker, and you know, there's someone you should use, or like uh you know, there's this podcast, you should be on it. I know someone and things like that. Like, it's just, it brings a level of security that you don't really find outside of our own community because you feel like to some degree, someone's always trying to like get something out of you. Like, yes. you know, <laughs> yes, yeah. And yeah. And, and, and there's a bit of security where like, you know, we're not going to pull a fast one on our own community because it, number one, it's our reputation. Number two, it's like, we know what it's like.
1: I completely agree with that. That A lot of times it's like, I don't know if you're recommending this because you make money off of it (laughs) or et cetera, et cetera. And I think the physicians, other physicians get when you're working, you know, the trading time for money part or, you know, how hard people have to work when they're in the COVID situation and urgent care and the ER or how burned out because of the short staff situation. So everybody, I think, like you said, finding the same peer and even finding some of the physicians to become your coach kind of like ground for both of us to shorten our time frame to achieve that goal i think is super super important and not being afraid to invest sometimes to some of these groups you do have to spend some money to join but not be afraid to invest that because a lot of times we go out to eat dinner and then it's like 50 bucks it's already gone yeah. or hundred bucks it's gone it's it's a small amount of money to invest for your brain essentially yeah. i feel like it's for your emotions for your mental toughness resiliency
0: yeah yeah we don't and that's that is a, a very hard thing for people to wrap their minds around like you can go and spend 200 on a dinner but why won't you spend 200 for you know to reach your goals times three X, to be held accountable, to be um, projected on your path at, you know, at a much faster rate at an easier rate. And, you know, that is part of the mindset, mind, not, the mindset that it takes to um, really achieve success. Because when you look at something and you say, well, eh, you know, my, you know, they're not worth $200 or I'm not going to spend whatever X amount of dollars to do this because, I don't think it's really worth it. well, you know that that's that is what keeps some people in 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 the limited mindset or in some cases poverty because they weren't they aren't willing to invest in themselves unless it's like some fancy institution unless it's like Harvard or whatever like you know, sure a degree to some degree is worth it. you're willing to th- pay thousands of dollars for that. but why aren't you willing to learn for experience or from someone who can help you down your path and it, for me, like I guess it is a mindset shift, but it is, it is for me, like something I'm, you know, willing to set aside as part of my own education fund.
1: Yeah. I always believe that you can't judge something until you have experienced it. And I remember my first true self uh, work seminar was at the Tony Robbins Unleash the Top Power Within seminar. I don't know if you're familiar. with that conference yeah Yeah. and it was 500 or so it was less than 600 for registration conference and i was a critical care fellow at the time and i debated for like six months to a year (laughs) to spend that money (laughs) i was like i could use that money and to actually have a vacation but you know instead it's four days of full day self-work and really you don't get told a lot um about what the conference is about. You just kind of have to go experience it. And luckily I had a friend who actually believed in him so much that she went to unleash the Power. Then she went to date with Destiny twice. And I love the person that she had become. And I took a deep dive and just went with my then uh, boyfriend at the time. And that had changed our trajectory exponentially. Like I would not have repaired my relationship with my mom without that. I would not have even known what was missing in my life because i I told you that i didn't I didn't feel fulfilled or happy after residency and I didn't know why, and I would not have known what was missing unless I went there and that basically fast tracked me to understand that at age twenty seven instead of finding out miserable when I'm age fifty or sixty
0: yeah what what was it about that conference that that helped you
1: i Finally realize there's six human needs that we're always striving for. And we all usually have a top two usually. And then there's like a life balance circle. So like the first one is certainty. And then it goes with uncertainty. Like we all need certainty that there's safety, there's a roof of our house, there's food, but we also don't want to know everything too much. We kind of like uncertainty in life as well, surprises. If everything was said, if we knew what how old we are going to be when we die, I don't think that would be we wouldn't like that very much. And mm-hmm. then you have also uh need for significance. So that's like me, my old me, like when I like look at all these certificates that I've accumulated. It's for significance. that was That's what I was striving for, for professional success. And then uh, we also have a need for love and connection with family, which is what I was missing. I was missing that basic human need. And then we have a need for growth, which I was getting um, through all of my academic um, pursuits. And then there's a need for contribution, which is what I was lacking as well. Um, I wasn't doing as much charity work or giving back without expecting something, or yeah, giving without expecting something, or just having contributing doesn't mean you know money, it could be time or it can be contributing your presence to others, like contributing your presence to your patients in front of you as they're speaking to you before cutting them off right away. Um, and so that's how, and then there's like you know, other life balances, but essentially I realized I wasn't meeting two of my biggest human needs.
0: Interesting. Okay. So I I, I want to kind of uh, gear gear towards a little bit of your career um as a NASA flight surgeon. So now that you're you know a, a full full suing into things, what is what is being a flight surgeon like and what is that really what <laughs> what kind of a career is that because i'm i'm totally not familiar
1: yeah yeah i know it's um uh, because what one sentence is that we help astronauts reach peak performance in space flight essentially and the way we do that is we are doctors who we can get assigned to specific missions, specific astronauts. Right now, I am assigned to one astronaut with another, like a primary crew surgeon, and I am the deputy crew surgeon. And so we once we're assigned to them, we follow them through all of the training beforehand. And we also, when they take their flight, we go to launch and landing with them. And then when they're in space, we're sitting at the mission control at NASA. I don't know if you've seen the video or photo of mission control at different consoles. And then, you know, the, the world map essentially, we'll, we'll staff it. There are eight hour shifts. Um, we staff the daytime and then we're on call the other times um, to, you know, be there for any medical contingencies. And we're also tracking all of their health while they're in space. And when they land, then we're tracking them through their rehab. We go to all the rehab. We, we basically their primary also, essentially almost like a primary care physician, but mm-hmm. a little bit more because we learn the physiologic changes in space um, and also when they return from space. And so we have that extra knowledge of the what the G-force does, what the vibration do, does, radiation, uh, noise level, et cetera, et cetera. And in between all that, we are also assigned to different Programs or projects. So I'm also assigned what's called the human landing system part. Part like 25% of my time. And essentially we work with other space companies who are selected, commercial space companies who are selected as they're developing the vehicle, we give medical input uh, and we discuss like operations for our astronauts and how it would look like from that vehicle to that vehicle, et cetera. And we have other medical conditions like a uh, space flight associated neuro, um, ocular syndrome. I'm assigned to uh, that project to kind of follow and be the clinical, uh, deputy clinical physician on that. So there are many, many things that you can do. And what's really awesome is that you get to learn like different disciplines, like, uh, propulsion, you learn about ground and communication. You learn about, um, the environmental system. You learn about how people do spacewalks and all the steps that go into it. You learn about satellite, you learn about radiation, you learn just like so many things from people who are passionate and are like PhDs in their field, experts in their field.
0: Interesting. So the path to this is, so you did an ER residency and ICU fellowship, and then you did an aerospace fellowship, which was two years, correct?
1: Yeah, that's correct. And then
0: after that, you would be able to get one of these a position of this.
1: Type. Uh it's not guaranteed, but because the Aerospace Medicine Fellowship, it's with University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston, Texas. It's only an hour drive from Johnson Space Center. And there's been a long relationship uh, between NASA and UTMB. And as residents, we do rotations at the NASA clinics. It's built in, like they're very space medicine focused. So, yes, it is one of the ways to get into the field and will give you a higher chance of getting a job there.
0: (laughs) Interesting. Interesting. Cool. So, what, anything you have you learned anything outside of what you would have learned in medical training that you find particularly amusing uh, with regards to like human physiology or the human experience when you know traveling into space or back from space?
1: Um, I mean, there's a ton that go into it, and we learn about how first the g force affects our human body as we launch and as we land, and the effects of vibration, radiation, uh, noise, even noise, the you know, to prevent noise inducing noise-induced hearing loss. And also when you're up in space, you have to do resistance workouts and other aerobic workouts to prevent bone loss. Um, Essentially, you could lose a ton per month. Usually it's like used to be a lot before, 1% per month but with the new resistance machine up there the astronauts are usually able to maintain their bone mass and their strength when they return. So a lot of things happen so it's interesting what's going to happen down the line when we start going to the moon for a longer duration and to Mars. Hmm.
0: Do you think that do you think that's in the pipeline where you know we could be in a, on a different planet for for prolonged periods of time?
1: Oh yeah. That's where we're going. We're going to the moon. I mean, this decade, and then we're aiming for Mars. So yeah, I believe it. There's going to be colonization. Technology is going to catch up. We're going to have the fast enough engine to get there. It, it'll happen. It, yeah. Technology is increasing exponentially all the time.
0: Yeah. Do you? Would you ever? So to to actually be able to go into a ship, though, like you would have to have a different level of training. Is that right? So you to have to the space. Astronaut. Yeah. Like, yes. That's not yeah. included in your fellowship training, right? <laughs>
1: no, no. My fellowship training is pretty cool though. But no, you don't get to go to space. But we did get to go to Antarctica as part of our uh rotation because it's remote medicine, you practice telemedicine. That was really awesome. Um, because it's like fifty thousand to go there and seventy thousand to go to South Pole. So it's almost like I got a raise for my resident salary.
0: <laughs> <Wow>.
1: Um and- <laughs> And no, but you would have to apply for the uh, astronaut core, like a, the job, and then go through, become multiple rounds of interview. Then you get selected. Then you go through two years of training and then you train for your mission too, once you're assigned.
0: Wow. So, so what is it? Like, so now you, what is your kind of day-to-day look like? I mean, you're doing, are you doing mostly work with, uh, with NASA and then also doing some clinical work as well in the ER?
1: So Monday through Friday. Yeah. I work for NASA and then part-time, I would say maybe once or twice, maybe four times a quarter, either in the ER or the ICU. It just depends how much I am traveling. Um, and of course, I want to save the weekends with my loved ones as well. That is one downside, I will say, is that you don't see a lot of sick patients in aerospace medicine. They're all super healthy. So really, to keep up the clinical skills, you will have to make be intentional in how much you work uh, outside of NASA, like in the ER. And I see that's how you keep up your skills.
0: Yeah, yeah. And uh, do you anticipate that ever changing or do you feel like uh, you you have a trajectory that you kind of have in mind now for the future?
1: In terms of uh, my work, yeah, I'm assigned to a crew right now. So my focus is really right now I'm still finishing a flight surgeon training. It takes sometimes a year or more. And so that's my focus right now, finishing that training so that I can go into the launch and landing, complete this mission. Because the mission, when they go to the International Space Station, is usually six months. And so after that, there's like months of rehab as well. So once you're assigned to a mission, it's like a year or two. So that's my focus, to be the best, most competent flight surgeon there is to make sure that my crew reaches her absolute peak performance.
0: Love it. Love it. Um, what would you, I guess, to wrap things up here? Um, what would you tell an audience, our, our audience here, um, to actually go out and do that thing that they've always wanted to do? Because um, I feel like this is sort of a takeaway from our recording, where you know, you set a long-term goal, you did something, you know, pretty out of the ordinary and now are living quite a out-of-the-ordinary type of life. And I think a lot of people are would be inspired by your story and would also want to go out and do that thing that they always wanted to do. And I just kind of would love for you to share some parting words with some of our audience.
1: I think the biggest, I'm a huge fan, is Simon Sinek, Start With Why?, because without your why, without your purpose, you're not going to have that drive to keep going, like you said. And I really had to sit down, think about my why, which the it's the five freedoms, and also my massive transformative purpose, my MTP, which is to help people create time, create vitality, deep relationships so that they can reach peak performance and fulfillment in life. Not just peak performance, but they have to be balanced and fulfilled in life. That took some mindfulness and some thought, some journaling to think, you know, 30 years, 50 years in the future, what do I really want? And a really good exercise as well, I've done before is that uh, you can imagine your own funeral. You have to imagine your own mortality and your funeral. And you think about, there's two ways to do this. What would your, uh, your gravestone say or write, you know, what would you want it to say? Like herein lies and song, uh, she has done th- whatever, whatever, or the way I did it is that I imagined my funeral where, my friends, my family, they all went up and said something about what I meant to them or what I've done. And I told myself that I was going to be someone who always cared about people around me, who gave my best intentions forward, who helped educate, who radiated positivity, who was always willing to help others, who's always enjoying life to the fullest and saying, yes to experiences I feel strongly about. And I I say I feel strongly about because you can't say yes to everything or else you can't focus and produce. So that's kind of what got me thinking about my why and kind of my purpose. And that's my North Star. And then you think about the next idea that you have or the next category of items that you want to work on whether it could be finance whether it could be changing jobs whether it could be a podcast idea like you know because i'm starting a podcast as well and you think about the next step and you chunk it down you kind of you know imagine what you want it to look like if you want financial freedom what that would look like if you want a podcast what would you be talking about but then you think about the next step and the next micro step could be Google how to create a podcast. You chunk it down to super small. Or the next step could be go to Audible and borrow Rich Dad Poor Dad and learn about the mindset of money. Um, or the next micro step is that I'm going to talk to my husband, my wife, my kids, and we're going to set a time. And a Tuesday night is family night, or Thursday lunch. Is uh, a lunch date, which is what I actually do with my husband, um, to so that if you feel like you need to work on family and connections. So I think that's how I would start. And something else that I do is that uh, every year I would have all twelve months on something like each month I would like map it out, and then it's something like a skill I want to learn, or like say uh, public speaking or speed reading or memory Um, and then some items that I want to accomplish and then something fun, like for myself that I've always wanted to do or like an event I want to do something fun or vacations. And then kind of every month I will have something like, and then measurable goals and progress. And then, so that's kind of like my battle board for the year. And then I also have 90 day goals that chunk it down to first. I start with the end vision, then I work on how I'm going to measure it. And then I work on the process goal, if that makes sense, like the actions that you have to take to actually get there. Um, And then every day I have, well, every week I have the week's priorities and then every day I have the top three priorities. So it's probably, it may sound like a lot, um, but it's all about chunking. Like you said, You start with a major goal first, which is 10 years, then you do 12 months, and then you do 90 days, and then you do month, week, and then day. And then a year later, after all these micro steps, now I'm about to launch the podcast and this started like a year earlier.
0: (laughs) Wow. Yeah. And it's, it's hard to imagine. Like I've written things down in the past. And I didn't really have a formal process of doing this before, but I would just, I've had notebooks where I just kind of write down my goals for the new year, for what I want to do. I write them down somewhere and then, you know, I start looking back on all the things I said I wanted to do. I'm like, wow, like I didn't even, I didn't even realize I did that. Like I spoke this into existence years ago. Um, And sometimes even just putting that intention down on paper and being Mm -hmm. super committed to it like, you know, this is what you're going to do. Um, I think you just be surprised in time, like, you know, you can't really see what you're going to do in a year or like three years or 10 years. You know, there's like that saying, like people overestimate what they can do in a year and underestimate what they can do in 10 years. Um, I think that's, that, that there is a lot of power behind that, but, um, you know, writing things down and, uh, Projecting yourself into the future and having a systematic process is grossly underrated.
1: (laughs) I, I agree. And it's the intention is so huge. Like you said, like setting the intention and handwriting things down, sometimes the idea will just flow. And then your brain, you're priming your brain to automatically pick up the resource that you need for that specific goal or that networking opportunity that you need for that goal, you're that knowledge. So, yeah. I it's, it's a process. Um, and once you start, I think it gets easier and easier.
0: Yeah. I know you said that you're starting a podcast and you're going to dive into more of the things we talked about on here. Um, I'd love to have you just talk uh, about your podcast, where people can connect with your podcast, um, and when they can expect to be able to listen in.
1: Yeah. Thank you for that. It's, uh, the website's called it's not rocket science show.com. And I talk about mainly productivity, really getting your time back, uh, creating deep relationships and also creating vitality. Essentially, you know, all after all the year, all these years, spending over 65,000 on coaching, on seminars, on meditation, brain and training, I am essentially sharing everything I have learned uh, with the audience. I'm hoping to launch the next month or so. Um, we're just kind of doing the editing process and the launching process and sorting out some loose ends on the podcast and the website. So uh, you can right now go to it's not rocket and pre-subscribe. Thank
0: you. Awesome. Awesome. Dr. Ann Song. thank you so much for joining me today. Um, I'm sure this is not the last time you'll be on the podcast with me. And uh, yeah, I'm just looking forward to the show and uh, all the things that are to come.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, Rami. And I'm excited for what you are creating here and especially the community that you're creating for physicians. That's your way of contribution. That's your way of meeting one of your human needs and everybody else's needs. So I thank you for that.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much.